And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, your source here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network for all your Dai Kaiju needs. And I am the man fulfilling those needs for you, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the Showa Gamera Classic, Gamera vs. Gauss. Uh, we've got a heck of a show for you today. We're taking a look at the next two episodes of the classic Subaraya TV show, Ultraman. Uh, again, a lot of good uh, feedback from our previous Ultraman episode, so I hope everybody will enjoy that. We also have, of course, the next issue, which is issue number nine of the Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors comic, which uh, has been a lot of fun. And uh, we're going to get right into that, but first, we have some Daikaiju news. As I mentioned on the last episode, in the lead-up to the release in just a few short months of the legendary Godzilla film in uh, May, a lot of the older Godzilla films are starting to be re-released, this time in the HD Blu-ray format. So, up first from Sony, we've got a series of Blu-ray double features. Uh, now, we've got one that collects uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and vs. Mothra. Uh, the second is Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. And the third is Godzilla vs. Destoroya and Godzilla x Megaguirus. Now, what's interesting is that these are the films that Sony has... The Heisei films are ones that Sony released on double feature on DVD many years ago. But the breakup is different because in the DVD double features, it was King Ghidorah versus Mothra, and then um, Mecha, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla was released on its own, and then Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Destoroya was its own double feature. Megagirus was then released on its own. But now you can get these three double features. They are fourteen ninety nine on Amazon.com. Uh, definitely worth checking out. I don't think there's going to be any special features on them. There were really no special features to speak of on the DVD release. But for the Blu-ray, it looks like they're going to continue that trend. But fourteen ninety nine, getting two movies, that's not a bad deal at all. Now, over on the Gamera side, Shout Factory who just recently finished releasing all their Showa Gamera films on uh, DVD, has, uh, is going to be doing them on Blu-ray as well. And they're doing them as quadruple features on Blu-ray. Now, the first one is Gamera, then Gamera vs. Barogun, Gamera vs. Gauss, Gamera vs. Virus. And then the second contains Gamera vs. Giran, Gamera vs. Jiger, Gamera vs. Zegra, and then Super Monster Gamera. And these will also set you back $14.99 apiece on Amazon.com. Uh, both of these are coming out in April. Uh, I'm not sure exactly on the dates, but if you go to Amazon, you can pre-order them, and they'll ship them to you when they come out, or you can look at your favorite retailer and see if they're going to get them in as well. I suggest Amazon, so that you can go 
go to twotruefreaks.com, use the Amazon.com link to pre-order these and uh, help us out here on the network. Now, these are pretty neat, though. I mean, having a, a four-pack of movies for $14.99, that's pretty good right there. Again, I don't have any word on special features or whatnot. I'm assuming these are going to be repacks of the releases from their uh, DVD sets, which did have some special features, but... Uh, I don't can't confirm that. Just to have these movies all in one set would be nice. In fact, I think it's funny that you can now own, once these come out, every Gamera film ever made on Blu-ray. There's something very amusing about that. Now, on the comics front, I had mentioned uh, a little while back that IDW's current Godzilla series, Godzilla Rulers of Earth, was ending at issue number 12, and this was borne out by the solicitations for the May 2014 comic releases, which noted it as the final issue. They also solicited kind of a, uh, a retrospective of the time of the Godzilla license being at IDW, a special issue coming out kind of focusing, I guess, on covers and such. But now, with the June 2014 comic solicitations coming out, the IDW solicits are out, and Rulers of Earth is still there. It is not canceled yet. Issue number 13 is due to drop sometime in June. And the solicitation specifically says, you know, by popular demand. So who knows how long this is going to last. I had known that uh, IDW had said previously that they knew they were going 12, uh, initially, they only thought they were going 8, and then they were sure there was going to be 12, but now it's it's going to be at least more. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. And at some point, I guess I'm going to have to cover that series. I, <laughs> uh, I've kind of put it off because I don't want to have two recurring monthly comics features on the show. So I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. Maybe I'll break it down into chunks or something like that once it's actually, actually finished. So we will see. And on the toy front, nothing specific, just want to let you know that as I'm recording this, we're about mm, two weeks or so from the street date for the Toys for the Legendary Godzilla, which is supposed to drop in or around the second week of April. So uh, if you have a Toys R Us in your area, you want to see if they've broken the street date, because a couple Toys R Uses have broken that street date, apparently. You can go out and see if you can find some Godzilla toys. I will be uh, definitely picking up at least the little super deformed ones, because I love super deformed stuff, and they don't cost a lot of money. So that, nor do they take up a lot of shelf space. So that's three things right there. That's uh, three pluses for Luke. All right, that's all the news I have for now, and I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and then we're going to come right back and get into the action on Ultraman. Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. (sighs) Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but... Granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo de Manzo, and where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. 
Uh, oh, okay. Cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! How, how the hell did you find me? And How did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com. And I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network. And in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, we're back and we're ready to get into the Ultraman goodness this week. Our first episode is Ultraman, episode number five, The Secret of Miragonda, The Appearance of Green Mons. When a series of bizarre killings begin in Tokyo, the Science Patrol are called in to help. Near the scene of each death, they find a strange green slime. Not THE green slime, but A green slime, which upon examination by their associate, Professor Amamoto, is found to contain chlorophyll and, strangely, a form of animal mucus, similar to the secretions made by snails. One of the victims is a Dr. Yamada, an expert in botany. Arashi and Ide pay a visit to his research greenhouse, and his assistant, Miss Maki, tells them that the doctor was experimenting in using radiation mm, to grow giant vegetables to solve the world's food shortage issues. While at his lab, Arashi and Ide notice that there is a bare spot in the professor's garden. Miss Maki says that that spot contained a rare breed of flower, which he had discovered during an expedition to remote Oiris Island. Science Patrol heads off to protect the last remaining member of the expedition, a photographer named Miss Amaguchi. She relates the story of the island, including how the expedition found not only the flower, but an aggressive plant which had been mutated by exposure to radiation in the water. Thus, the hypothesis is set. The aggressive plant is the immature form of the flower, and like the one on the island which was irradiated, the one which the professor grew giant through atomic energy similarly grew aggressive. While patrolling Amaguchi's house, Arashi is ambushed by the plant monster Green Mons and wounded, but the rest of the science patrol use their sidearms to drive the beast off into the sea. The threat is not over, though, as Green Mons returns to the heart of Tokyo later that night, having grown to a towering height. The science patrol lay into him with their entire arsenal, including the newfangled nuclear gun, but nothing can hurt the strange monster. Hayata decides it is time to escalate and transforms to Ultraman. 
Greenmonds is not defenseless, though, as he emits a poison gas, choking Ultraman down to one knee and setting off the color timer. Greenmonds takes advantage of his foe's weakness, trying to smother Ultraman with his massive flower body. With time running out, Ultraman fights off the plant monster and uses the Specium Beam, setting Greenmonds aflame and ending the menace forever. This is a very unusual episode in that it's it does have a giant monster, but it's not really in the same vein that we've gotten from the previous four episodes. This one starts right off the bat with a creepy kind of horror movie opening with Greenmon stalking and killing his victims, uh, including making, uh, he stalks one who's in a car and he crashes and then stalks on the guy, stalks up on the guy when he's, uh, you know... Uh, hurt in the car and can't run away. It reminded me actually a lot of Toho's so-called mutant films. These are films like The H-Man and The Human Vapor, which featured human-sized monsters, or kaijin if you prefer, very much in that vein for the, the majority of this episode. Uh, we get some interesting effects choices this time out. We get some experimentation with rear projection for the, the jet VTOL. First when it's landing at uh, Dr. Yamada's greenhouse, and then when it's on the land and we see Ide and Arashi coming around in front of it. I think as the series, we'll see this as the series progresses, <clears throat> but I think at this point they had made a few episodes, they were pretty getting comfortable with working on their uh, schedule and budget, and so they're trying to stretch their legs a little bit effects-wise and try new things, and so the rear projection was a, a nice touch in that respect. One of the major plot points in this episode is that Dr. Yamada is using radiation to grow giant vegetables. In fact, we see a carrot the size of, like, a bicycle, which uh, Ide is not super impressed with. He's like, why, you know, like, carrots shouldn't be that big. It's not natural. And the stated reason for this is to, uh, you know, help the world food shortage due to overpopulation. This is a very kind of common sort of theme in the Showa period, this idea of using science to help man's ills. And uh, with Japan being a country that imports the vast majority of its food, food shortages and, uh, you know, being able to, to feed one's people, I think, was always kind of a, uh, a theme that hit home for the Japanese audience. And so that's why you see it pop up. This is a major plot point in the film Prophecies of Nostradamus which came out about mm, about 12 years or so after this. But even, even as I said, even as early as here as 1967, we see that theme uh, starting to pop up. For the first part of the, or most of the episode, really, anytime we transition from one scene to the next, we get what I call the slime wipe, where uh, the dissolve from one scene to the next is done with a wipe of green slime crawling across the screen. Very, very effective and uh, neat little uh, visual trick there. It's not all uh, doom and gloom in this episode, though, as during a scene at the Science Patrol HQ, Ide gets accidentally punched in the face by Arashi and goes down like a little girl, um, you know, fulfilling his role as comic relief for this episode. And then for the rest of the episode, we see him with a bandage wrapped around his head to hold his jaw because Arashi laid him out so hard. Uh, it's, It's nice to get a little bit of comic relief in what's essentially a straight horror episode. So I thought that was a nice choice. When we get the flashback to uh, Oiris Island, there's a very uh, another interesting design choice. The entire flashback is told in black and white. Now, normally, uh, that seems fairly straightforward, okay? To differentiate it from something that's happening in the present, we're going to do it in black and white. But uh, what they choose to do is they pop a color filter on the flower. So this very strikingly pretty flower is shot in color, and everything else is in black and white. So I thought that was a 
you know, real interesting choice, and it's really memorable because I, I don't think there's a, another instance like that, at least not one that I can remember in this series where they use color and black and white together like that. So I thought that was really nice. <laughs> when they're guarding the house, when they're guarding uh, the photographer's house, you know, they're all on patrol, walking around, looking around. The Greenmon's jumps Arashi from right next to a stairwell. He's walking up a stairwell, and Ryumans basically jumps over the wall of the stairwell and grabs him. Arashi apparently so concerned with looking everywhere else, he doesn't bother to look right next to himself. If it was Ide, I might buy this a little more, but Arashi? Eh, come on, man. Notice how Hayata never gets uh, jumped like that, or the captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're professionals. We get to see... If I th- for the first time in the series, when they're firing their uh, sidearms, they bring down the blast shields in front of their helmets when they're all opening fire on green mons. They're, they've been there the entire time, but they haven't used them. I think it's, again, it's a nice, realistic touch. You know, why design something there if you're not going to use it? You know, uh, One of the strengths I've always thought of the Subaraya shows compared to especially the Toei shows, your Super Sentai and Kamen Rider shows, was there was a lot of thought given to the functionality of the uniforms and equipment for the most part. And so you get things like this where it makes sense that their uniform would have something like a blast shield built into the helmet for when they're firing their weapons. During the attack, uh, Greenmon's attack at night, the Science Patrol uses their entire arsenal, including a, the nuclear gun, which to me is the uh, the foreshadow of the spider shot that Ar- become Arashi's kind of signature weapon in the series. It looks very similar. The beam that it fires looks a little different. It has a different sound effect. But this idea of there being a, a heavier weapon for the Science Patrol to use rather than their pistols is, is uh, like I said, foreshadows the spider shot and other various weapons that E-Day will develop as the series progresses. It doesn't do much good here, but as we'll see in the next episode, the idea sticks fairly uh, quickly. Uh, during the fight, and the fight is really not that long. It's a fairly short, fairly simplistic fight, but Ultraman does uh, <laughs> kind of look into the future and throws a rider kick at Green Mons. Now, again, this predates... Common Rider, even the manga. So the idea of Ultraman throwing a rider kick is just coincidental. But as soon as he jumped up and went Shwash! with the kick, I could not help but think, Rider kick! Now, if it was a rider kick, he would have baited him with just the kick. But, you know, it's not obviously the rider kick. But uh, During the fight, which takes place at night, in fact, takes place at midnight, because at one point, as Greenmons and Ultraman are circling each other, trying to size them, each other up, the, we hear a clock tower tolling midnight. I thought that was very ominous, and kept with the creepy theme of the entire episode. I thought that was a, a very good move by the uh, sound direction to cut the music out and just leave the, the eerie silence of bong, bong. Very cool. As I said, the fight is very short. Green Mons uses his gas, and, and Ultraman goes down pretty hard. Um, you know, this is, again, physical attacks would always, you know, Ultraman could counter him, but attacks like this that attacked, um, you know, his, his senses, or in this case his ability to breathe, would be shown to be effective against Ultraman. In fact, all the Ultra heroes, I think it's very dramatic that you can show them pantomiming, trying to breathe and gasping and choking as the color timer starts blinking off. We get the color timer warning, of course, because as I as I said to my wife the other night, every episode of Ultraman might be someone's first. So just in case you don't know, now you know. It hadn't become a trope yet that the color timer on a giant hero, that their chest blinks whenever they're in trouble. 
But the fight is very short, and I think it serves the episode really well because we've had a lot of very good, atmospheric, um, you know, horror-based, uh, you know, scenes going on with Green Mons as a as a kaijin, as a mutant-sized monster. To have him grow giant is kind of just a function, I think, of the fact that Ultraman has to show up. Had this been an Ultra 7 episode where 7 would sometimes fight at human size, I don't think Green Mons would have become giant. But in Ultraman, obviously, he has to become giant. So it, it's I like that they keep the fight fairly short because that's not the focus of the episode this time out. The focus of the episode is kind of the, uh, the monster on the loose, human-sized monster on the loose angle. Honestly, this episode, it seems like an Ultra Q episode, which ended up not being made and was held over for Ultraman. It's got a lot of very moody and atmospheric aspects, a lot like Ultra Q. The little bit that's in black and white also helps sell that, because Ultra Q, of course, was in black and white. The horror-style plot is helped by the fact, like I said, that the giant monster stuff, very light compared to the kaijin portions of the episode. Green's, Green Mons, as a monster, is very unique. He's asymmetrical, which is, we haven't seen an asymmetrical monster yet in the series. Uh, he's definitely a plant. He looks, he, he's, he doesn't have any real limbs. He's got a big, almost kind of Venus flytrappy mouth, but not really. He's got one tendril. That's it's the actor's arm on one side. The other arm is held against his body. And he has, just like, he's just like a vine. So it's a very unique monster, and that they pull it off fairly well in Suitmation is uh, is commendable, because at this point, you know, we had had Bemular and Balton and Naranga and Ragon, so we had had four humanoid monsters. Now, even with Bemular's little tiny arms, he was still humanoid. So to pull off a non-humanoid monster and to pull him off very nicely, I thought was a was a good job by Subaraya's effects crew and. And makes this this episode even more memorable. Um, in addition to, like I said, the the atypical aspects with it being more like a horror story than a science fiction story. I like this episode a lot. Um, and I said it, of course. Uh, you know, Green's Green Mons. He'd show up a few more times down the line. He's not a super popular monster. Uh, I know he is in. He's referred to at least, and I think he might be very briefly glimpsed in the Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle the movie. Uh, where it's the hundred monsters from the past, but he is does have notoriety of being the first plant monster in the uh, that Ultraman or any Ultra Hero fights, and he predates Biolanti by like 22 years. So that's something, right? All right, we're gonna take uh, a timeout right now to listen to a very important message, and then we'll be back with our next episode. So come on, right back. Tremendous energy which Ultraman gets from the sun diminishes rapidly in Earth's atmosphere. His warning light begins to blink. If it stops, Ultraman will never rise again. All right, thank you for listening to that important message, and let's get on with the next episode. Ultraman Episode 6 is entitled Coast Guard Command, The Appearance of Gessera. The Science Patrol receives a report of a 65-foot-long great white shark, which is dead. Hayata ponders what could have made a shark so giant, and then again, what managed to kill it? Meanwhile, Hoshino and his friends Chiro and unnamed female 
are having fun down by the water near the docks when Chiro witnesses a giant monster rise up out of the bay. Hoshiro misses it and doesn't believe him, and anyway, is more interested in tracking down the notorious smuggler Diamond Kick, whom he is sure he saw earlier that day. While looking for Diamond Kick, the kids run across an old sailor, who tells them that he believes Chiro, and that the monster's name is Gesera. Gesera is a lizard from the Brazilian rainforest who loves cocoa beans. And conveniently, there's a huge shipment of cocoa beans coming into dock right now. And tons of cocoa beans sitting in a warehouse right now. Meanwhile, Diamond Kick and his henchmen are searching the warehouse, which is, of course, full of sacks of cocoa, in one of which they've hidden a bag of diamonds. There's hundreds upon hundreds of bags of cocoa beans. One of them, they have diamonds in. They didn't mark them. Nice plan, Diamond Kick. Anyway, Hoshino and his friends call in their various findings to the science patrol, who initially dismissed the monster sighting, but are more interested in Hoshino's Diamond Kick spotting. The team rolls out to the docks, but soon panic sets in as Gesera makes himself known again, sinking a ship carrying cocoa beans. Hoshino and his friends don't fare much better, getting captured and kidnapped by Diamond Kick and held in one of the warehouses. While Gesera goes on a a cocoa-fueled rampage, sinking ships left and right, the kids outsmart their captors and escape. With the kids safe, Hada has seen enough and goes to transform into Ultraman, but Gesera chooses that moment to land on the er, on ground and topples the building which Hayata was, Hayata was in, knocking the beta capsule out of reach. Gesera continues to run rampant on the docks, smashing buildings and generally causing a ruckus. Hayata finally reaches the beta capsule and transforms, saving the retreating science patrol. The two struggle back and forth, with Gesera's rage giving him the upper hand. Ultraman is game, though, and the two giants batter each other. Finally, his power reserves running low. Ultraman tricks Gezera to jumping back into the water, and uses the knowledge Hoshino learned from the old fisherman, ripping the feelers off of Gezera's back, fatally wounding the monster. Crisis averted, Science Patrol looks around for their missing member Hayata, who promptly returns to the scene with Diamond Kick and his henchmen in tow. Okay, Gesera, a monster that uh, very, not very popular, but certainly a popular monster who would reappear, and uh, one of many monsters to come from the sea, the second monster to come from the sea in this very series. We're only six episodes in. Hoshino is back after taking the last episode off. Um, His friends are Chiro, who is a kind of a goofball who's always losing his shoe, and his female friend, who if if her name was stated, I missed it on two watch-throughs of this show. I mean, I went through last night trying to find it, and I couldn't find her name. So, uh, uh, the Gezera versus Giant Shark, unfortunately, is a fight which we sadly do not see, because that would have been pretty neat. I'm picturing Gezera tangling with, like, Zegra from Gamera versus Zegra. The suggestion is made later in the episodes that it's pollutants in the water that cause Gezera to grow giant. So I'm guessing the assumption is supposed to be that the pollutants also made the shark grow giant. Because Hayata asked, ponders a question and asks, what would make a shark grow to be 65 feet long? But we never get an answer for it. So I'm assuming that's what they were going for here. Again, 1967, we still got an environmental message as early as this point, not even into the 70s yet. Very typical, like I said, in the Showa period. Uh, the old sailors the kids run into proves, once again, that old sailors are essentially the same no matter what country you go to. This guy looks like the Japanese version of Popeye without the squinty eye. Uh, but he's useful. He gives us all the backstory on Gezra and tells us how Ultraman can beat him by ripping the feelers off of his back. Very unique. One of my favorite, absolute favorite stock 
Tsuburaya special effects happens in this episode, and that is the roiling water before the monster surfaces. Anytime Godzilla would surface, or Abara, or any monster coming out of the water, there'd always be that roiling, bubbling, churning of the water, uh, and then the monster would surface. I that was that always got me so excited as a kid because I knew when that was happening, Godzilla was showing up, and we get it here with with Gessera doing the same thing. Great to see that old uh, Subaraya trick. As I said, Diamond Kick's plan is to hide diamonds, just a little baggie of diamonds, in a sack of cocoa beans. He doesn't mark the bag, you know, he doesn't, uh, you know, have some way to track them or anything. I mean, and this warehouse is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bags. It's like, this guy has managed to evade the authorities for years and years and smuggle diamonds? That's a pretty sad statement for the authorities, I think, more so than anything else. So, of course, he gets his when he tangles with the science patrol, because, let's face it, everybody gets theirs when they tangle with the science patrol. Uh, Chiro's missing shoe is a running gag that comes back several times. Uh, first, he runs off and loses his shoe. An unnamed female brings it back to him. Then later, when they're kidnapped, the, he drops his shoe and Fuji finds it. That's just how they know that the kids have been kidnapped. Then later in the denouement, he loses his shoe again. Uh, th- this is what passes sometimes for comic relief on this show. You know, Hoshino's not bad in this episode. It's kind of He's kind of a dick to his friend, though, because he kind of just dismisses the monster sighting. It's like, you just dealt with Naranga and Ragon like two weeks ago. Maybe you should give the guy the benefit of the doubt that he's telling you the truth about this monster. I mean, I understand he's interested in, in taking out this smuggler because, frankly, I think Hoshino could probably outsmart Diamond Kick, which they pretty much do. So I can understand where Hoshino's coming from, but come on, man. You're, you're a science patrol, not the police. In fact, Arashi initially tells him to call the police instead of them if he sees Diamond Kick again. I thought that was funny. Uh, mention is made very briefly of the Brazilian branch of the Science Patrol. Now there would be a show, uh, which is funny because a lot of tokusatsu was exported to South America during the 70s, especially, and dubbed into either Spanish or Portuguese. Man, I'd love to see the Brazilian uh, uh, office of the Science Patrol. I imagine they got some smoking babe in the Fuji role, and then like a South, you know, a Latin-style Ultraman, you know. Oh, man, that'd be crazy. He'd, he'd probably look like a luchador or something. Man, that would be a heck of a show. It probably, it'll never happen, of course, but that'd be something. Uh, Gezra sinks several ships in the dock, and every time a monster uh, sinks a ship, I, of course, contractually obligated to say it reminds me of Gyra from War of the Gargantuas, much like I did when Ragon did the same thing a couple episodes back. So, uh, There's a great dockside set right built on the side of the effects tank, where the monster can come up out of the water and, and land, and Gezra absolutely levels this set, does a great job of just smashing it all to pieces, and it, it really looks nice with the combination of the water and the and the land. I think it's a well-put-together uh, sort of effect. We'd see this, again, several times down the line. Uh, Gayango, I think, uses a very similar sort of setup, where they, like I said, they, they build it right next to the, the side of the effects tank. So good good job there. Uh, as I mentioned on the summary of the previous episode, we get to see Arashi wielding the spider shot this time. This, again, would become his kind of signature uh, firearm for the series. It has a bit more of an effect on Gezra, insofar as it kind of pisses him off, which is more than the nuclear gun did to Greenmons, but it's nice to see it because it would be very typical to see everyone wielding their pistols except Arashi, who'd have the spider shot. Um... 
and, and as the series progresses, it really becomes his main go-to weapon, and to me is one of the kind of defining characteristics of Arashi is that he's a heavy weapons guy. Uh, as you know, as, as we get more and more development of the characters as we progress. Um, Hayata goes to transform, and the building collapses, and a beta capsule is just out of reach. We've already seen this trope a couple of times, because we had a kind of similar problem when he fought Bolton, and the beta capsule was on the ledge of the building. Nothing quite so drastic this time out as he grabs it, just kind of wiggles his way out from under the wreckage and grabs it to transform. Gezera, the first monster defeated without using the Specium Beam, as he has a stated weakness. As I said, the feelers on the back of his neck. Um, we'd get other monsters like this that were not defeated with the Specium Beam, but of course Gezera gets to be first. I like that it's not always the Specium Beam. It's almost always, for all heroes that they use their major um, you know, cross-beam attack or cross-shot attack, whatever you want to call it, to defeat the monsters. So it's always kind of novel when they find a different way to do it. And this, again, will happen a few times throughout the series, but uh, it, you, do, you do feel for Gezer on this, because he's kind of just driven mad with cocoa, uh, you know, chocolate fever, for lack of a better term. You know, he, he's just trying to eat all the cocoa beans, and, uh, you know, Ultraman's got to put him down, because, you know, even though he's not actively trying to hurt anyone, he's destroying buildings, he's hurting people, so he's got to put him down. So this is the kind of thing that we, we see later in the series when, you know, Hayata starts to question, you know, do I enjoy hurting monsters? And I think the it always comes back to that, you know, the, defending the Earth comes before feelings like that, is that monsters may sometimes just be, you know, their, their only thing they've done wrong is the classic in a Shiro Honda quote that they were born too heavy, too tall, too strong. But that, you know, you still got to defend the Earth, and, and sometimes a monster that's on a rampage can't be stopped any other way. So we, we see that here, and we do feel, like I said, we feel for Gezer as, he, as he's wounded and sinks beneath the sea. You know, he, he, he put up a good fight, you know, he, he, he uh, held his own against Ultraman. At the end, Hayata gets his men because he's a boss, and you don't mess with Hayata. And uh, he's even taunting them. He's kicking one of them and saying, go on, walk, come on, as he's dragging them in. And it's like, man, he managed to, you know, get a building dropped on him, fight and beat Gezera, and still catch Diamond Kick again. Diamond Kick, how did this guy do this? You know, run into the science patrol, his criminal career is over in 20 minutes. You don't sometimes you don't uh, you don't tug on Superman's cape and you don't screw with the Science Patrol. I guess that's what you take from it. This is about as far a 180 degree turn from the previous installment as could be expected and still be the same series. Uh, this episode is a is a rollicking good time, you know, to watch. It's got a very fun monster in Gezera, a very typical kind of Saturday morning plot with the kids being kidnapped by mostly bumbling gangs. And a toe-to-toe fight between Ultraman and his foe, which really is a, a good, solid fight, unlike the previous one, which kind of downplayed it. This one, they definitely play up the Daikaiju action. The fact that Gezer is obsessed with chocolate makes it all the more amusing for me. I don't I don't know. That's just... Uh, some people really like caffeine. He really likes his chocolate, I guess. Uh, a classic sort of Ultraman story. We get the mixing of the human plot and the monster plot, which was very common for this type of, uh, this, not only this series, but the ones that followed it. And it works well on pretty much any 
on all levels, really. It's an entertaining and energetic episode. It's one of my favorites from the early portions, and, and Gezer is a favorite monster of mine. I have two plush Ultraman monsters. One is, of course, Bemular. The other is Gezera. So I enjoyed watching this one. So I wonder what kind of uh, hijinks Ultraman will get into in our next installment. Well, we'll find out a few episodes from now. But, but for right now, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a Star Shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. Okay, we're back, and now it's time to dig into Marvel Comics Group's Shogun Warriors number 9. Shogun Warriors number 9 was cover dated October 1979, released on or about July 3rd, 1979. These dates come from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mench, our penciler Herb Trimpey, our inker Jack Abel, letterer Diana Albers, colorist Carl Gafford, Editor Alan Milgram, Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter, and our title is Star Child. Off the coast of Madagascar, Elongo Savage and his assistant-slash-love interest, Judith Johns, have wit- just witnessed the birth of a hideous beast. Hatched from what they thought was a meteor which crash-landed into the sea, the monstrous Star Child has them trapped in the grotto. Using his pendant, Savage calls the Shogun Sanctuary for help. Although Dr. Tambora can provide no information on the beast, big shock, he does transport Vanguard Ace to the scene. But the Shogun is too tall to fit inside the grotto, instead materializing outside. Judith takes a desperate chance, swimming past the Star Child to lure it out of the way, while Savage makes a beeline for Vanguard Ace. At the controls of the Shogun, Savage attacks the Star Child, but with no effect. The beast makes landfall, heading for Savage's Marine Research Center, but none of Dangardace's weapons, nor sheer brute force, seem to slow it down. Meanwhile, in a courthouse in Japan, Genji Odashu is accused of being a traitor and absconding with the prototype jet. Unwilling to reveal any information about her status as a Shogun pilot, she refuses to answer any questions and dismisses the court's threats. Back in Madagascar, the town of Manakara is under siege by the Star Child, who has discovered that it can also breathe fire. Dangard Ace tries to end the monster's rampage, but is having no such luck, including having to save a busload full of schoolchildren. No, really, it's he actually has to save a busload full of schoolchildren. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, Richard Carson's dinner with his lady friend Dina is interrupted by the arrival of a pair of men in black who inform Carson that he has come up in their investigations of the so-called beach incident with the robot monster Cerebus. Carson plays dumb, but both he and Dina are worried. At the Shogun Sanctuary, Dr. Tambura chooses right now to ask Charn if they have learned anything about Cerebus, which, of course, they haven't. Charn then gives an update on the battle in Madagascar, where Savage has saved the kids, but still faces an uphill challenge. When Dangard grapples his foe, the Star Child lashes out with its fire breath and topples a nearby building. Savage is forced to drop the beast and instead holds up the building. The opening gives the Star Child a moment to rest, and it begins to glow, its body contorting and twisting as it sprouts wings. 
Flying back to the sea, Savage is left to wonder if this melee was but the prelude to the real battle yet to come. Back at Genji's court date, right as the judge prepares to sentence her, the entire building rumbles and shakes. Running outside, Genji grabs her pendant and summons Dr. Tambura, for in the sky looking over her is a five-headed flying serpent monster swooping down to attack. Next issue, the mystery deepens in Fear Times Five. This is what we might call a Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, issue with a lot of action going on and a few uh, little subplot peek-ins, but let's get right into the notes. The cover has Dangard Ace tangling with the Star Child. We see Judith in her wetsuit in the foreground. It's definitely in line with the kind of covers we've come to expect from the series with one of the Shoguns tangling with a monster. Uh, it's got kind of a striking bit of action here. The Star Child is using its long, prehensile tongues to um, wrap around Dangard, and Dangard Ace is returning with a, a punch to the throat. There's a, a shipwreck down below, which I don't think actually happens in here. It's a good cover. It definitely, like I said, will come from what we've come to expect from Trimpy on this series. It looks real nice. Uh, page one, the splash page shows the uh, thing from the grotto, or as it's now called, the Star Child. And uh, it still looks pretty crazy. It's a little less crazy looking from last time, but it's still a very strange looking monster. Definitely not humanoid and really just bizarre with all the little tendrils and the tentacles with the little fibrous things hanging off of them and the eye and its fangs. Also on this page, interesting note, Judith finally gets a last name and they keep in the classic Marvel tradition of alliterative names as she is Judith Johns. Uh, pages two and three throughout this sequence in the grotto, uh, Ilongo and Judith are talking in their wetsuits with scuba gear on. So my question is, how? Do they have some sort of miniature transmitters and receivers in their gear that they didn't tell us about? This is kind of one of those comic book tropes that people can always talk no matter what they're wearing. This comes up a lot with Black Manta. How does he talk underwater? When in, in, in the famous panel where he takes his mask off and shows us that he's uh, black, it's like, well, how is he talking then? He's not wearing his helmet, but he just kind of roll around with it. Turning over to page 7, panel 1, there's this, uh, the shot here is Judith swimming right at the reader, and it's, uh, it's a total trip-out sort of uh, panel here because the coloring is crazy because her wetsuit is now orange with a lot of heavy shading on it from the inking, uh, behind her looms the eye mouth thing of the star child, and that's orange with a purple brow, white fangs, a red eye, a blue iris around the eye, and the green little, I don't know, silica, I guess, at the bottom. So it, it really looks kind of strange. Defin it looks like something Jim Starlin would draw, especially with the colors. Very striking image. I like the, uh, this, in the underwater scenes, it's really good use of, of inking, the blacks from uh, Abel's inking, which gives it a nice moody, a feel for being underwater. Turning over to page 14, for some reason, Dangard Ace looks very stiff uh, for most of these action sequences. I'm not really sure why, though. It's hard to put my finger on it. Uh, you know, maybe Trimpy didn't have as good a grasp on Dangard Ace as he did on Rydine. He's He has drawn Rydine more through this series because of just, uh, you know, there's been several more issues to feature just Rydine than there has Dangard Ace. Or my other thought was, you know, uh, Jack Abel did the inking this time out instead of Mike Esposito. Maybe that's it. I don't know that the inking makes it look more stiffer because a lot of it's the posing. A lot of it's the posing of the robot. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. 
perhaps it's just a Dengard Ace is not just as dynamic a robot as Rydeen or Combatra. I mean, that's totally possible, too. Not all super robots are created equal. Kind of interesting to see, but there's a lot of panels where he just looks kind of, you know, blocky and stiff. There's not a better adjective, I think, than that. Uh, turning over to page 15, panel 2. Uh, a great shot, as uh, looking somewhat stiff, but still okay, as Dangard tries to use sheer, as I said, sheer brute strength to headbutt the uh, Star Child into submission, and he comes flying in from the right side of the panel with uh, just wham! And it's like he's going to hit him with an 80s pop band. That's the way you do it. Although this has two M's, so it's not quite the right wham. This is a, I always love a good, solid headbutt. Did they have to edit this out of the British uh, version, I wonder? Or is that just with people? I don't know if robots count. Of course, then we go over to panel three, and it's the, re the, uh, the reaction to the headbutt. And I'm not sure what the heck is going on here, uh, because there's two lines, like two swoosh lines, where Dangard is going, but they're not, they don't make sense together. It's like one of them shows him, looks like he was dropping down and then made a hard turn and is flying out of the panel. And another one shows like he's bouncing off the Star Child. So it's really unclear what is exactly supposed to be going on in this panel. Also, uh, a nice pink sky in the background just for fun. Just a strange panel in general. Going over to page 16, we get the look-in on Genji and her court date in Tokyo. And from the half a page we get of it here, it's very eh at this point. Because it doesn't, you know, this little half-page sequence doesn't, advance anything other than, you know, uh, Kosei is, oh, please, Genji, just tell them the truth. I know you couldn't do anything wrong. You know, it's a lovesick uh, potential love interest for Genji, but, you know, we already kind of knew that from previous issues, so there's no real advancement here. Genji doesn't, you know, she's basically uh, agreeing to not participate in their proceedings, and I don't think you can really do that in court, so... Uh, page 17, we get some nice monster rampaging as the Star Child makes land on the town. And he, uh, we got a good panel in, uh, panel 5 of people running away in the foreground as he breathes fire and blasts buildings. And then panel 6 is kind of the reverse angle as we see a car and waste, uh, wastebasket flying, um, uh, towards us as he blasts behind them with fire. There's a nice little sequence here of the Star Child going, uh, going bananas on the town. I like it. The monster himself, he reminds me of a monster you might see in, like, a, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. You know, it's something that would be extremely difficult to realize in live action, but in an animated, or in this case just illustrated form, you can you can do it. It's just kind of a, it's a weird shape, a lot of weird, um, you know, appendages and such that takes advantage of the fact that we don't need to render this in latex. Uh, turning over to pages 22 and 23, we have our look-in on Richard Carson. All subplots counted for. Thanks, Sean. Uh, I'm assuming that these men in black are showing up to sow the seeds of future storylines. Uh, I mean, that'd be the only reason they'd show up, because they make a lot of vague threats, nothing real specific. Um, so I'm, I have to assume that this is going to be one more thing the Shogun pilots are going to have to deal with going forward besides these random monster attacks. We also get a nice little one-panel flashback to the fight with Cerebus, which is nice. So Riding actually makes a very small cameo appearance from the back in this issue. Uh, turning to page 26, panel 4, as uh, Dangard grabs a hold of the Star Child's main body, you get a good look of just how really bizarre this thing is. It looks like an eggplant with tentacle legs, and all I can say to that is yuck, because there's not many foods that I don't like. Eggplant 
is close to the top. And, ugh, this thing just looks, but that just, I keep saying strange and bizarre. There's no other way to describe this thing. And Dengard grabbing it from behind looks a little naughty. So I'm just going to leave it at that, I think, and move on. Uh, page 27, Dengard Ace's rendering looks a lot better on this page as he's holding up the building to keep it from toppling on the people below. And again, I'm, I'm just not sure why Dengard looks so stiff in most of this book, because the rest of it looks fine. It still looks very much in line with what Trimpey had been delivering for the rest of the series. So I'm not sure what it is with Dengard. There's a really neat thing here in this panel one where uh, Dengard has got his back to the building holding it up, and there's a guy hanging out the window right above his left um I guess it's an ear, you'd call it, the left horn on his helmet. And he looks he looks like he's, I don't know if he's trying to hang on or to shake his fist. Hey, you robot, get out of here! So, I thought that was funny. Uh, panels three and four, that same page, the metamorphosis of the star child as he grows wings. Somehow this monster actually looks a little less strange when you add wings to it. I don't know. The proportions seem to work better, having something else on its back so it's not just this bulbous thing. And uh, we get to see in the last panel, it's swooping off. And it's got the kind of feather... Well, they look like feathered wings, like a condor's wings or something. And uh, so I'm assuming this monster is going to be back, since there's no real conclusion to the fight. Uh, turn over to page 31. This is the last page. We get yet another cliffhanger, this time with Genji being uh, assaulted, or about to be assaulted by this five-headed serpent monster makes me think uh, of a demon hand from Japanese uh, mythology. You know, I'm trying to remember what they call that, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about. You'll see that in, in, uh, in movies now and again. And, um, Gigatron from, uh, Transformers Car Robots, one of his modes was a, an evil flying hand. That's a useless bit of knowledge right there. Um, real quick, the letter column makes interesting reference to that, uh, a reader or uh, a reader writes in asking about why that uh, he'd like to know why they picked Combatra and Dangardes instead of Guy King and Great Mazinga. And um, they actually give an answer where they said that for a while they thought they did have the rights to Guy King. Oh, no, excuse me. Well, it says we never had the rights to Guy King. We thought we had the rights to Mazinga for a few weeks and uh, as well as the rights to another Shogun, which is Dragon. So, for a while, they even started writing stories with Carson piloting Riding, Genji piloting Great Mazinga, and Longo Savage piloting Dragon. And they, so panic apparently broke out when they realized they didn't have the rights to two of those robots, and had the rights to the other two robots, and they had to go and redo a lot of it. Which may explain why only Riding shows up in the first issue, in retrospect. You know, because at the time I was like, well, why not only writing in the first one? It's like, well, it introduces the concept, but maybe it was because they had drawn the first issue or written the first issue with uh, Great, Maz- Great Mazinga, who's, who's uh, Maz- Great Mazinger. Now, see, they, they keep switching back and forth. I don't know if they mean Mazinger Z or Great Mazinger, but let's just say Great Mazinga. That wrote it with that in mind instead of with Great Mazinga and Dragon instead of Combatra and Dangard Ace, maybe that's why they had to leave those other robots out and just use writing. I don't know. If I ever uh, if I ever can find the answer to that, I'll let you know. Take a look at ads inside front cover. Free, only for Earthlings, gold-colored Cylon Centurion Leader from Battlestar Galactica. Very cool little ad here where if you buy, what is it, I think you buy four 
Yeah, send in the front panel from any four of the Battlestar Galactica figures, and you can get the Gold Centurion. Very neat. I had some of these growing up. I want to say we had Imp Imperious Leader, but I didn't have his robe, and I didn't know what the heck he was supposed to be. Because, I mean, he's this big pink lizard thing, and, you know, we never really see Imperious Leader. And that kind of lizard aspect of the uh, Imperious Leader from the Cylons was dropped by the time it actually made it to series. I don't, I don't know. Uh, show the world your underoos. This is a great page. You can wear these great polyester cotton t-shirts and briefs in full color. Choose from Spider-Man, Hulk, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, or Shazam. So there you go, Rob Kelly, who doesn't listen to the show. Aquaman and Shazam can coexist. I like on this one, they've got the Hulk up with the incredible Hulk instant muscles. Apparently it's an air bladder system that you wear under a shirt, and then you use a hand pump to inflate your instant muscles. That is hilarious. The kid has this great look on his face, this incredibly wide goofball grin. So uh, I've never seen that one. That looks hilarious. It really does. We get a, um, a Costas ad this time out, and it features the Incredible Hulk. It's the Incredible Hulk and the Ultimate Weapon. Our weapon is out of control. It will destroy everything and anything in its path. And in its path. The Hulk. Dumb human scared. Hulk not scared. Roar! Hulk enjoyed fight. First time humans no interfere with Hulk. Now Hulk do them a favor. Humans forget troubles. Enjoy hostess fruit pies. Light tender crust. Real fruit frilling. Apple, peach, cherry. I say, our weapons contract has been terminated permanently. Maybe we should forget about weapons and concentrate on enjoying ourselves, starting with these hostess fruit pies. Humans finally getting smart. You get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. This tank that they have on here is pretty cool looking. It's got a drill on the front, it's got a big cannon, three missiles, and it looks like a jet engine on the back, and it looks like eight wheels in the treads. Like, that's a pretty neat little tank here. I like it. Of course, Hulk takes it out with one punch. Also interesting, on the opposite page on the bullpen bulletins, there is a item about Marvel Premiere number 50, which stars Alice Cooper, which is one of the very few issues of Marvel Premiere that I own, and an absolute hilarious comic uh, deal. It released around the time of Alice's album On the Inside, so it deals with him being locked in an insane asylum, a very fun comic. Uh, Space was a very fun comic as well, uh, good for an all-out fight issue. Uh, but the subplots, the way that they're done, the story seems to go in fits and starts. You know, once we get kind of into the big fight, we have to take a break to look in on a subplot. Trimpy and Abel's art is quite stiff in several places, which, you know, the stiffness is not unheard of in this series. It does seem more noticeable and more pronounced with Dengard Ace as opposed to with Riding or Combatra. Again, not saying it didn't happen, but I just noticed it more this time out. Still... It's a decent issue with an absolutely crazy monster. There's the promise of even more action to come. Definitely keeps up with what we've gotten so far from the series, and every time I've read an issue, I've been really eager to get right on to the next one. They've been doing real good use of the cliffhangers, and this one's no exception. So I'm looking forward to number 20. I hope you guys are enjoying this. I'm having a blast reading through this book because this is all brand new to me. So, All right, uh, we are going to take a quick podcast promo break, and we'll be right back to close out the show here in Earth Destruction Directive. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. 
Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or Hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him till it has been drained of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn.com Com. Okay, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive, and in my hands I have your emails to the show. If you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and all the ways you can get in touch with me will be in the outro tag at the end of the show. So let's get on to the feedback. Uh, this first email comes from Professor Allen, and is entitled EDD number 26. Professor writes, Great episode, Luke. Despite having almost no context for any of the stuff you talked about in this episode except vague remembrances of the Shogun Warriors comic. That's a good sign. What I love is the variety of material you cover. I never knew there was so much giant monster stuff out there, but I'm glad that there is. Keep them stomping. Professor Allen, host, Quarterbin Podcast, co-host, the Shortbox Showcase. Thank you for writing in, Professor. What I'd like to say is that there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And as we all know, that is, of course, a famous quotation from King Kong versus Godzilla. Thanks for writing in, Professor. You can find Quarterbin Podcast and Shortbox Showcase, along with uh, the Professor's daughter's uh, Emily, her show, uh, Discovering the Bronze Age, at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Go check it out. Some really good stuff from the professor there. Our next email comes from the man who some say showed up at the Warner Brothers back lot in a tuxedo, top hat, armed with a homemade umbrella gun, to try to win the role of the Penguin in the upcoming Superman vs. Batman movie. And the man who some say should be out of lockup in three to six months. All we know is he's called Jack Dower. And Jack writes, Christopher Walken should be buried up to his eyeballs in the very sludge his power plant illegally dumps into the sewers of Gotham. Yikes. Jack writes, hey there, detective. I just finished uh, the 90s Gamera trilogy. Gauss was handled much differently than in the 60s film. The threat of multiple flying engines of death looked almost unstoppable. 
While the bat-like monster in the 60s film was clearly dangerous, especially to sleazy reporters, but nowhere near the world-ender as seen as the 90s trilogy. Don't get me wrong, I like this film a lot and would join those who think it's the best of the 60s films. How do you feel about the 90s movies? Uh, I'll stop right there and answer your question, Jack. I like the Heisai Mothra... Heisai Mothra. Wow! I do not like the Heisai Mothra films. That's a rant for another time. The Heisai Gamera films, on the other hand, are really good. Uh, I, I think they can get a little slow going in spots, especially the third one. But generally, they're really, really good. I really like them. My brother got me the... Uh, the triple feature of those on Blu-ray for Christmas. I haven't had a chance to hook them back up, but I really enjoyed those. Um, you know, Legion, the monster from the from the second film, is really crazy. I really like Legion and Iris from the third one. And of course, as Jack says, Gauss becomes a you know a really really dynamic threat in in those films. I I really like them. They're good stuff. Let's see, Toho. Let's see, Jack continues. Toso, Toho also had their own giant turtle in the film Space Amoeba from 1970. This guy did not have any of Gamera's superpowers, but he did have a cool cannonball neck attack. I enjoyed that film too, but I thought the monsters were handled a little weak. Did you see it? What did you think of it? Okay, let me take another time out. I guess I've seen Space Amoeba, also known as Yogg, Monster from Space. Uh, it's it's all right. It's kind of a it's kind of an oddball movie. It was a movie that was released kind of in the early summer. And from what I understand, it was kind of a, aimed at a kind of slightly younger market, which is hard to believe considering Toho's output by 1970. But it was supposed to be just a fun, breezy summer vacation movie. And this is some good monsters in there. The, the turtle monster he's talking about is Cameobus. And Cameobus is probably best known for the fact that he gets killed in uh, Tokyo SOS, Godzilla, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, Tokyo SOS. He shows up as a corpse on the beach. But it, also, it does have the, the crab monster Ganymedes, and the, uh, the probably the best-known monster is the squid monster Gizora, who everybody probably remembers from his appearance in the NES Godzilla game, and who recently popped up again in Godzilla's Rules of Earth. Space Amoeba is not a bad movie. It's not one I'd really throw on all that often, but it is, it is pretty... Uh, it's fun in its own way. The monsters are, are strange in there, because no one monster really kind of shines. They each kind of get their own little segments, the nature of the film. It's worth watching, and it's out on DVD. Uh, Media Blasters under their Tokyo Shock label, I'm pretty sure, put that out on DVD. All right, Jack continues. Second, I do not see anywhere in the box saying what the scale of the Corgi pen Penguin Mobile is. I can tell you it was made in Britain in 1979, and it's probably older than both the hosts over at the Wonderful Fantastic Cast podcast. It's not older than Andrew, I can tell you that. Old Man Leyland predates the uh, the Corgi Penguin Mobile. In this vehicle, the Montebank of Mischief is cruising in a car slightly bigger than the average max matchbox. And I believe th I, that's what I had thought the Corgi cars were, were a little bit bigger than 164th, but I wasn't sure. So thank you for the clarification, Jack. Jack continues, third, on the Shogun Warrior story, take this from a fan who ranks you as one of the best podcasters out there. Please stop singing. No insult intended, I just have your best interest at heart. Well, if they'd stop making the titles of the comics the names of songs, I wouldn't have this problem. So, obviously I didn't sing this time, so maybe we're, maybe we're out of the woods on that front. Uh, Jack goes on, finally, I totally agree with you. There is a ton of great Godzilla merchandise about to be a kaiju-style threat to the wallet. I want it all, but to get it, I think I'll have to rob a bank using a trick umbrellas and birds... Uh, you didn't hear that. Let's just go to the question. 
90s Gamera revived Gauss. Are there any other Gamera foes you would like to see brought back for the next group of Gamera films? Who are they, and how would you update them? Thanks for the great show. Keep stomping and stay safe out there. Jack Dower. P.S. Paul Williams is amazing, colossal, a towering talent. He makes pretty good music also. <laughs> uh, as far as the monsters I'd bring back, I'm a huge fan of Barragan. I think that you could do a really nice update of Barragan as the, I said, the, the chilling lizard, as he was subtitled when uh, in, in his film. And I like Virus also. I think you could do something with Virus, play on the fact that he's intelligent, that Virus is not just a monster, but he's an alien invader that grows giant so he can think. Uh, and, you know, but Virus is, is really kind of basic. You know, he doesn't have any beam attacks or anything like that. I don't know that they would really bring him back. See, you know, the same kind of with Barragan. As a Barragan's, you know, a fairly well-known opponent for Gamera, but uh, I think a lot of people kind of laugh at some of his powers, like the Rainbow Ray and stuff. I would up, I would keep Barragan's origin essentially the same, have him be born out of the ruby on an island from the South Seas, go over Showa on that. And uh, but I, I might, you know, I, I would redefine his powers a bit. I would have some kind of explanation for the Rainbow Beam, or maybe do it in a different way. I would keep the, the, the battering ram tongue and the, the freezing aspect. I would make uh, part of the island be frozen, and that maybe is what the, ex, the impetus for an expedition to go there is to examine why this tropical island in the South Seas is frozen uh, partially. Virus, I again would keep him as an alien invader. Uh, but maybe I'd you I would I would play more on um, like a mind control element or something like that. Maybe Virus is behind the scenes manipulating things, and then uh, when when the uh, spit hits the fan, he uh, pulls all his drones in and goes giant, and Gamera has to fight him. What do you folks think? Who are your favorite Gamera monsters? How would you revive them for a uh, a new run? How would you revive Guren, for instance, or Jiger or Zegra? Or even somebody like uh, Zetus or um, Legion or Eris, even. So, uh, you know, write in. I'm interested in hearing what the re- what the listeners think about how you would revive uh, and update the Showa Gamera monsters. As far as Paul Williams, he is a towering talent who makes pretty good music. I have to admit, uh, big fan, big fan. Uh, Jack also wrote me a second little note. He said, I made a great find today, partially thanks to thanks to you. Uh, he says, Lieutenant, thank you for letting me know there were 20 issues, not 12, in the Shogun Warrior series. I've been on the hunt for issues 13 to 20 ever since. I finally found a place called J&J Comics in Fountain Valley, California. He had four complete sets of the series. Today, I could only afford three comics, but I got 18, 19, and 20 guest starring the Fantastic Four. I can't wait to get into them, but I think it will hold off until I can follow along with you. Thanks again for filling me in on this. I am always looking for appearances by the King of Monsters, Blue-Eyed Benjamin J. Grimm, and the Wicked Waddler himself. Keep stomping, my friend, and stay safe out there, Jack Dower. Yeah, no problem on that, Jack, because I didn't even know that Marvel did a Shogun Warrior series until, like I said, I happened to find number one at random. And then I went on eBay and I found a lot of all 20. The, I have not seen really a lot of Shogun Warriors in back issue bins or discount bins. But to be honest, since I have the whole series, I'm not looking that hard. Uh, but I'm glad you found a resource for them and hope you can pick up the balance of them. And Fantastic Four 226, which I got off eBay uh, pretty cheap. Uh, which is the epilogue to Shogun Warriors, which we'll be covering as well. Hey, and again, the Thing is in there, so you get the Thing and the Shogun pilots. No robots, though. 
Well, you get one robot, but you don't get Rydeen, Combatch, or Dangardes. But I haven't read those issues yet either, so we'll we'll be discovering them together, Jack. So uh, I look forward to hearing your comments on those. Uh, that's our email again. If you want to get in touch, you can uh, listen in the outro and get in touch with the show. So what are we going to be covering the next time? Well, we're going to be jumping uh, ahead a few decades. We're going to be getting back into the Millennium series and watching the next film in that series. You'll recall that on a very early episode of the show, we did... Uh, Godzilla X Megagirus, and then in a later episode we did Godzilla 2000, so we're now into the third installment of the Millennium series, which is Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Out, Giant Monsters Attack, better known as GMK. So we're going to be taking a look at this very unique entry in the series, which returns Godzilla to his villainous roots for the first time in a long time. We'll have the next issue of Shogun Warriors, which will be number 10. And, of course, we'll have your feedback, and if any breaking news comes up, and, heck, the way the news has been coming in lately, there might be, we'll cover that as well. So I hope everybody enjoyed the show, enjoyed their little double dose of Ultraman, and uh, come on back next time. Until then, keep them stomping. Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L J 
A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.